God's sending and our saying we'll go, also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then said I, here am I, send me. There's two sins over there in Isaiah in that passage. And then there's John 20, 21. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me. Even so send I you. And there's John 17, and 18, where our Lord says, As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. I remember when I was a boy that once in a long time a missionary would come to the little country church. He'd grown up in the neighboring county. He was a Methodist missionary, but he belonged to all of us, and he came to give his message. And I remember sitting there, pop-eyed as a youngster, looking at that table loaded with curios from Africa, elephant tusks and spears and headgear and what have you, listening to him tell about lions and jungles and savages and slow boats and depravity and disease and dangers and primitive missionary life before the day of jets and radio and wonder drugs and modern technology. And then when he stood up, as he usually did, to sing, I am a stranger here within a foreign land. My home is far away beyond the golden strand. Ambassador to be to realms beyond the sea. I'm here on business for my king. And when he sang that, I was about ready to go to Africa or anywhere else. We didn't hear missionaries often. And it really did something to us. For many years, I've gone down to Hampton DuBose Academy in Florida. I went there back in the days before air travel mounted to much. Fathers and mothers brought their youngsters to school and left them and headed for the field not to see them again until they were pretty well grown. And that was a heart-twisting experience. It doesn't happen so much now. The picture's changed. Foreign missions has gone through a revolution. Nationalism has come. And the missionary abroad lives in conditions many times, not unlike ours here at home. And in some instances, they are sent over not to convert the heathen, as we used to say, but for agriculture and education and medicine and social service. Now we sing John Peterson's song, So send I you to labor unrewarded, to serve unpaid, unloved, unsought, unknown, to bear rebuke, to suffer scorn and scoffing, so send I you to toil for me alone. And when you get to that verse that says, So send I you to leave your life's ambition, to die to dear desire, self-will resign, to labor long and love where men revile you. So send I you to lose your life and mine. When I hear that, I begin to ask, in this new age with things more comfortable, both here and there, in some ways, 
Is there a corresponding challenge today? Is there a modern equivalent to the same devotion and ruggedness and courage and fortitude in this affluent generation that stands in posh churches and sings unconsciously to the old rugged cross, I'll ever be true, it's shame and reproach gladly bear, and then folds up the shame and the reproach in the hymn book and puts it away in the, on, in the pew and the rack and hurries home to a big meal and the swimming pool and the TV and the sports all Sunday afternoon. Is there any way that we can dare and double dare American young people and the rest of us at home or abroad to go to a life of sacrifice and suffering for Jesus Christ that will even remotely resemble the old preachers and the old missionaries? Now, we're grateful for the advantages of science and the things that technology has created. Nobody wants to go back to dirt roads and kerosene lamps and horse and buggy travel. We appreciate the wonder drugs. You take them and wonder what's going to happen next. <laughs> they scare me to death at these drugs. After I've taken one for a whole year, here comes a scary piece in the paper and says, look out, you may drop dead any time. <laughs> Is there any way today to call for pioneers with the sturdiness and self-abandon that would be at least a reasonable facsimile of what our forebears endured gladly for Jesus Christ. We grew up singing, Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sail through bloody seas. But if we told the truth, we'd sing, I would be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease Though others fought to win the prize, I'm not so hard to please. That's the new verse. You didn't know that one, did you? That's it. Young people are fed up with every earthly satisfaction, and they're asking, what does the church have to offer in the name of Jesus Christ to live for and to die for, like God's heroes of the past? And what is there today to revive the spirit of Pentecost in the church? Now, you have the same situation when it comes to preaching. What is there today to challenge a preacher in a comfortable pastorium with two cars and, or more and retirement benefits and trips to the Holy Land and a wall full of diplomas? We've all been spoiled. I started out in the first Bible conferences. Brother, in those days, any fellow who could find two shade trees in a pond of water seemed led of the Lord to start a Bible conference. And some that I stayed in, wow. I remember one up north, they had beds that had cords instead of springs. You'd get up in the morning, your back looked like a waffle. <laughs> some of you have heard Jim McGinley in days gone by, that Scottish preacher. He and I were in Chicago one time, and I was, they, for some strange reason, they put me in the Edgewater Beach Hotel. I was just sure there'd been a mistake, but I didn't dare say anything about it. <laughs> Jim said, where are you staying? I said, in the Edgewater Beach. He said, I'll pray for you while you're suffering over there. 
but we've all been spoke. I remember the old summertime meetings here in North Carolina. After laying by time in the country and the farmers all had a little time to go to church. You wouldn't know what laying by time is, some of you, but I'm not, I haven't got time to go into all that. <laughs> and there we were, night after night, open windows to let in the air and the mosquitoes. Uh, air conditioning, the main thing about the air conditioning in those days was the condition of the air. Horses neighing, and dogs barking, and babies crying. Had a revival anyway. Now everybody has to be cool and quiet, and no amens allowed, and everything's conventional, coordinated, cut and dried. But the glory has departed. Now we're holding candlelight meetings because the power's been cut off. But I hear the times have changed. We don't need the old missionary type and the old pioneer preacher. You say there aren't any jungles anymore. Now, where in the world have you been? No jungles? Why, we've got an asphalt jungle from Maine to California. Jungles of crime, drug jungles, prostitution jungles, massage parlors. You say there aren't any savages anymore. Now, what do you mean by that? Have you been reading the kind of crimes that people are committing nowadays? It used to be just meanness, we, but we've always had meanness. What we have now is more than meanness. This is double distilled demonism. We're up to our ears in moral putrefaction. With communism spreading its tentacles around the world and lawlessness abounding and love abating, if there ever was a time when, like the children of Issachar, we ought to have understanding of the times to know what Israel, what God's people ought to do, it's now. If there ever was a challenge to be heroes and soldiers of the cross, pilgrims and strangers, and rugged in the faith, that will not shrink, though pressed by many a foe, you're living in it right now. The very fact that we're all taking it easy in this age of progress is the greatest challenge I know. It's harder now to stand in a pulpit and preach like they used to than it was when they were doing it. You had company then. Now you're a loner in many an area. It's more difficult than ever not to be smothered into silence and soothed into mediocrity and shamed out of condemning sin and separation from the world and a closer walk with God. In the old days, the perils were visible, obvious. The lines were drawn. Black and white had not been smudged into indefinite gray. The Vietnam War brought in a new kind of fighting. In the old wars, you knew where the enemy was. He was out there, but now he might be beside you, under you, over you, anywhere. And so we pitched in to one that we were afraid to win and ashamed to lose. Now the wolves are in sheepskins and devil, the devil is transformed into an angel of light and it takes as much courage for a preacher to face a congregation of cocktail-drinking church members and preach total abstinence as they used to. 
than to face Indians in the wilderness. It takes just as much courage to be a Christian student in a college and really live for God where the word of God's denied and laughed at. If you think there's no demand for rugged courage and sturdy preachers with the head of a scholar and the heart of a child and the hide of a rhinoceros, you've been asleep. You try to be a New Testament Christian any day in the week now, and you'll find a jungle full of beasts and a wilderness is full of Indians, as it ever was for the African missionary or the American colonists. We've watered the gospel down, made concessions to the world, the flesh and the devil, compromised light with darkness, righteousness with unrighteousness, and Christ with Belial, and church with the world, until there are no points of contrast, now there are only points of similarity. And every time the social order or the political order or the entertainment world or the sports world or the music world makes a change, here comes the church trotting along, trying to change its principles and its policy and practice to match the times. We're not out to make Jesus Christ acceptable to big business and the press and the world of sports and modern education. We are not diplomats but prophets. We're not out to arrange a compromise. We're out to issue an ultimatum. Old Micaiah stood the only true preacher. They had 400 of the other kind there with Ahab and Jehoshaphat. You know, they decided to go up against Ramoth Gilead and it was uh, the decision of Ahab. He had scripture for it, but he was the wrong man to do it. He was a bad man trying to do a good thing the wrong way. And Jehoshaphat got in with him, easily swayed. And before they finally took off, he said, maybe we'd better get the mind of the Lord about this. And so they called in 400 times serving prophets, and everyone said the same thing. Go up and prosper. When Jehoshaphat knew something was wrong, anytime you can get 400 preachers to agree, something's wrong somewhere. <laughs> and he said, is there not a prophet of the Lord besides? Besides. Let's call him. Ahab said, yeah, we've got one, but I hate him. And that was the best recommendation old Micaiah ever had. <laughs> hate him. So they sent for him. And he came, Ahab said, now tell it like it is. Do you want us to go or not? And the first time he used sarcasm, which is a weapon the ministry has quit using, and the Bible's full of it. And then Ahab said, now give me the lowdown on it. And then he did, and they sent him off on a diet of bread and water. But old Joseph Parker, England's great preacher, said, this world always hates the 401st prophet. He's always an oddball, old 401. <laughs> and I'm trying to rally some 401s today over the country, everywhere I go, trying to get me a band of old 401s who will be the oddball. Now, we've got plenty of the wrong kind of oddballs. Don't misunderstand me. I'm trying to get the scriptural kind. A man who walks with God in the pulpit or in the pew today walks a lonesome road. It's a straight and narrow road, and few, F-E-W, few there be that travel. It never has been changed. It's a lonesome valley. You must walk that lonesome valley 
You must walk it by yourself. Nobody else can walk it with you. You must walk it by yourself. Jesus walked that lonesome valley. He had to walk it by himself. Nobody else would walk it for him. He had to walk it for himself. You do have to walk it for yourself, but bless God, you don't have to walk it by yourself because you've got company. The Lord said, I'll be with you on that road. And so, beloved, if you think there's no challenge to sacrifice and suffering and the reproach of the cross, you're not thinking about New Testament Christianity. Now, there may be some of this Madison Avenue, hail fellow, well met crowd, sipping seven up at the cocktail parties in the country club, more interested in being one of the boys than they are in being men of God, but that's not this kind here in the book. And they say, well, the climate has changed today. Yes, but you don't live by the climate. You live by your conscience in this thing. And the conscience of a Christian is the same or ought to be. You're not a thermometer to register the prevailing temperature. You're a thermostat to change the temperature. It cost everything. It cost everything. It still does. The day I made a profession of faith in Jesus out in the country, I found myself trying to sing, Jesus, I my cross have taken. All to leave and follow thee. Destitute, despised, forsaken. You never hear that one anymore. We've got a new tune and new words to all this today. Thou from hence my all shall be. And uh, I, although I was a green country boy, I didn't need any Bible scholar to tell me one thing, that I was under new management. Now, I had a Lord, and I had a master. We're not here to reconcile Christianity to the world of flesh and the devil. We're ambassadors for Christ, ministers of reconciliation, to reconcile men to God. And we can sing that old missionary song, I am a stranger here within a foreign land because our citizenship's in heaven. I'm here on business for my king. And you're sitting out there just as comfortable as you can be, and you don't think missionary challenge means anything for folks over 40. I've had it. This is for young folks. Let me tell you, it's for everybody. Maybe you can go to Africa. You may not be able to be one across the sea, but you can be one across the street. In my own church in Greensboro, the First Baptist, some Sundays ago that I was there, rarely am, and at the close of the sermon, the pastor spotted me away back there, and the choir had been singing, we've a story to tell to the nations. And they sang it well, but I... I sort of got out of order, I guess, a little bit there. When I started praying, I said, Lord, help us to remember we not only have a story to tell to the nations, we've got a story to tell to the neighbors. It's a lot easier to send a check for $100 over to the nations than it is to go across the street and meet one of the neighbors in the name of Jesus Christ. And I don't care what you do for a living. If you're a Christian, you're a missionary. Everyone's a missionary. The other day a fellow came up to me and said, I'm an ordained plumber. <laughs> That's the first one of that breed I'd ever seen. And I think he's right. God's called him to be a witness. Nothing wrong with that. I don't care what you do for a living. 
you're a Christian, you're an ordained doctor, you're an ordained lawyer or a truck driver or a housewife, you're ordained to get the gospel out. Everybody. We're all in full-time Christian service. Whoever got the idea that was just for preachers and missionaries? Aren't you supposed to live for the Lord every hour of the day, every day of the week, every week of the month, every month of the year? What's that but full-time? Christian service. Now, it won't be easy in these jungles and among these savages here, but we have his orders. So send I you to hearts made hard by hatred, to eyes made blind because they will not see to spend, though it be blood, to spend and spare not, so send I you to taste of Calvary. You see, today the cross has been supplanted with cushions. Painless Christianity. No drudgery, no work. Everything's that way. To join the army and enjoy yourself. Learn to be a musician, an artist, an athlete while you play. Everything's funny. Make a game out of it. I was in a meeting out in Texas, and Van Cliburn was at the morning service, the great concert pianist. He played the offertory. Then I had a talk with him after the sermon. I thought, my, my, anybody would be glad to play a piano like that, but not many would want the drudgery that that boy's gone through all these years to get up there, and he still has to do it to stay up there. Because if he'd quit for a week, his fingers would be thumbs and everybody would realize it. The world of sports can tell us something. On TV, you remember, they some time ago they showed postgraduate students of cello and violin taking postgraduate lessons from Heifetz in the case of the violin and Casals, now gone, of course, but in the cello and... Uh, I heard this fellow play that cello, and it's the most masterful music. And I thought, well, he doesn't need any lessons. What in the world is he taking postgraduate lessons? And after he finished, guess what Casal said? You're playing the notes, but not the music. Now, that's what happens when a master speaks. And sometimes I think when you and I get an idea, now, Lord, I've about graduated, and I'm going to coast from here on in. The master... He's saying that's not the way I see it. Chris Everts can play tennis like nobody's business because she has developed a, a, a way of uh, shutting up her thoughts in an isolated mental booth so that when she plays, she doesn't think about that crowd or anything but tennis. I wish Christians could learn that about serving Jesus Christ. So you don't learn this thing in 10 easy lessons or money refunded. <laughs> Take a positive attitude before breakfast and you'll be present in the company before you're 40. There was a young man from Kilpeacon whose nose was as red as a beacon. But by saying it's white, 30 times, day and night, he cured it and died an archdeacon. <laughs> you don't learn it that way. Christianity is not a better way just to have a good time. I don't like this deluxe brand, this sort of hallelujah ain't God grand version today. Paul said we wrestle. Now that's not funny. I suppose that wrestling is the most strenuous of all the sports. 
every muscle rigid, every nerve tense, and your shoulders always only a few inches from the mat. And that's the figure Paul used as we contend with these powers of evil. You weren't saved to be made happy. God saved you to make you holy. Now, if you want to be popular, preach on how to be happy. But if you want to sort of drive off some folks, start talking about being holy. The happiness boy is more interested in religious politics and promotion and retirement benefits. They're a long way from Paul, who wouldn't be any bigger hit in a civic club today than he was on Mars Hill 20 centuries ago. I have a better response today from young people than I've ever had in all these 60-odd years of preaching. I don't like this business of lambasting the kids today. They didn't create this situation. They inherited it. And you know where they got it, don't you? When I was a boy out in the country, I didn't want the preacher to mark down the prices to get me to run down a church aisle. I knew that if being a Christian wasn't worth everything, it's not worth anything. And the kids today dislike this phony business. And when we uh, use sneaky, uh, dishonest approaches to make Christianity attractive to youth, uh, we do a disservice more harm than good. We may see a reaction one of these days on the part of youth to all this permissiveness so popular now. This generation, the older one, has made the biggest flop, home-wise and family-wise, of any crowd in history. New books on how to raise children, on sex, on marriage, on the new education, and still Johnny can't read and doesn't know the value of a dollar and can't stay married. And uh, we've had a million divorces last year in this country, and the experts have failed. They know how to analyze everything. They've got their books on the escapades of Junior, they know how to account for all of them. Junior bit the meter man, Junior kicked the cook. Junior's antisocial now, according to the book. Junior smashed the clock and lamp, Junior hacked the tree. Destructive trends are treated in chapters two and three. <laughs> junior threw his milk at mom, Junior screamed for more. Notes on self-assertiveness are found in chapter four. Junior got in Grandpop's room, tore up his fishing line. That's to gain attention. See page 89. But Grandpop seized a slipper and yanked Junior across his knee for Grandpop hadn't read a book since 1893. <laughs> you know what the title of that poem is? on getting behind with one's reading. <laughs> I think maybe we ought to. I'm way behind. I don't ever intend to catch up because half of it I don't want to read anyhow. But we've got everything explained, beloved. You never had as many experts on in every area, but look where we are. And youth is asking today in all honesty, what do you mean about this uh, challenge of the cross? Paul Harvey said the other day, he said, if these kids, enough of them get through without their brains being blown and their stomachs cooked, 
If they make it, I predict, he said, that they'll be the strictest parents when they become parents on record because they will have known what all the other business did. I don't know. There are some ifs as far as I'm concerned on that, but I think he's got a point. And youth is saying, where's the cross and the sacrifice and the challenge? I'm not lining up for a Boy Scout jamboree where all this you talk about the reproach of the cross. Being a Christian is not a frolic. It's a fight. It's not a picnic. It's a pilgrimage. It's not an excursion. It's an execution. Death to self begins with that. Except the corn of wheat fall in the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, twice in the same verse, it must die, 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 before it amounts to anything. And God's looking for grains of wheat today to sow. He's looking for seed corn all over this world. And he wants to bury you to yourself and what you want to be and what you want to do to come up again multiplied in the lives you've reached. And in your testimony, it begins with death. Some missionaries started to Africa years ago on a slow boat. And the captain of the ship laughed at him and said, Why, you'll only die over there of all those fevers and the rest of it. You'll just die. And the leader of the group said, Captain, we died before we started. That's what I'm talking about. My daddy used to run a little grocery store We'd get the box of garden seeds in. I always liked to watch him open it and look at all the pretty packages of the beans and the beets and the tomatoes and all the rest. But we wouldn't have had a thing to eat out of all that box of seeds if they'd been left in the pretty packages. The packages had to be torn open and the seeds put in the old dirty ground and die and come up again. And I look at many a congregation dressed up in their Sunday best on the Lord's Day, and it looks like that box of garden seeds to me all over again. And I feel like saying, good Lord, the trouble today is we've got too much packaged Christianity and not enough planted Christianity. And there may be some right here tonight. You don't want to be torn out of your pretty little package. You want to have it your way. You don't want to be upset and turned around and die to self, but that's the only way my Lord's pleased. And you must get to the place where you're ready to say, Come ill, come well, the cross, the crown, the rainbow, or the thunder. I fling my soul and body down for God to plow them under. Now, if you can get around to that, something may happen. And if you don't bury that grain of wheat, it'll never be anything but a grain of wheat, and that's not much. And if you don't let God bury you, you will never be anything but you. And a man wrapped up in himself is the smallest package in this world. Dr. Louis Evans tells about being in a hospital over in Africa and watching a young doctor from the States perform a very delicate operation on the body of a little native girl, just a little nobody, but he worked as hard as though she were a princess. And after it was over, he said, I asked the doctor, what would you get for that back in the States? Well, I don't know. He said, maybe a thousand. I don't know what I'd... What will you get here? He said, a few pennies and the smile of God. He said, he grabbed me by the shoulders and said, but man, this is living. 
That's what I'm talking about. Of course, you've got to be born again to see that. Not only that, you've got to be yielded to the Lord to see that. 